Yours truly, the Gap Two Guru of Gumbo, aka Brandon Johnson, and aka a whole lot of other things that I'm not going to get into tonight. I have a smile on my face. I hope that you can see that through the phone. And I'm smiling because number one, I'm alive. Number two, you're alive. And number three, there must be a reason and purpose that we're here. Otherwise, we would be in an existence where we couldn't smile. So even though there may be things going on in our lives, individually as well as collectively, that would predicate a mean mug or anger or unabated, unguided emotion, I am smiling because I know what's about to go down tonight. Now, our topic, for those of you listening, what's going on, kid folk? I see you out there. For those of you listening, it's kind of a misnomer when it says basic training for black males because some of these things are going to be for females. And then also it's not going to be so basic, if you know me. I don't really do basic because if we're going to move higher, we need to be thinking on a higher plateau. But the good thing about the discussion tonight and as we get into it, I have a lot of life experiences that most people don't get to experience, even some black men. I've been places that most people won't go, and I talk to most people. I talk to people that most people won't talk to. But tonight, it's not just me. Uh, Joining me in the conversation as we um, get into the meat of the matter of what's the hot-button subject going on in America has been for my life, but as of late, what happened to the great Big Floyd, um, one of one of you know uh, one of the people I associated with in my rap days in Houston, Texas, and his untimely death that came at a point where the boiling has stopped and the steam is now escaped the pot, and we're at or I shouldn't say stopped, but The boiling point has surpassed, and we're over 212 degrees at this point. And now the steam is rising, and I think there may be some attention. But um, with all that being said, with my ratchet self, we have a counterbalance, uh, if you will, not a counterpart, a counterbalance in our own viewpoint, which uh, he and I agree on so many things. And I just, I I love this brother because he has been at the forefront of the fight when it comes to lawyers and getting policies and other initiatives going, especially when it comes to defense of and in the support of people who have been marginalized, wrote off, 
underestimated in the entire country. And that is none other than our previous guest, Carlton Myers III. Welcome, Carlton. Hi, thank you, Brandon. Uh, it's Carlton Myers, Myers II. I'm not saying that there won't be a third one day, but I'm not here. Oh, there's a second, isn't it? I put third on everything. I, 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 I'm, <laughs> I'm calling it into existence. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> the second, yeah. Well, t- brother, tell us where. Tell everybody where you're positioned at this point, who you're working with, and a little bit about what your own personal company is. So people that haven't heard of you before get to know you, and then those who do know you can see that you have transitioned from a few of the things from when we first met to where you are now. Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you very much for having me on your show especially during uh, a time like like this. I mean, we're in a pivotal point, uh, point in uh, U.S. history where we're having uh, protests and uprisings happening all around the country uh, surrounding uh, the death of another black or another black person, regardless of male or female, just another person of color, another black person in this country by law enforcement. Uh, and so uh, I think that if now more than ever the attention – is really shown on the importance of respecting people's human rights uh, through systemic changes, not only by uh, holding individual officers, officers accountable, but by also holding the system itself accountable that those officers are working within. And so um, thank you very much for having me here. In regards to uh, the work I do, as you know, uh, as an attorney, uh, I've had a lot of experience working on these issues on policing reform. Uh, you know, I was I ran NAACP National's uh, criminal justice reform program for the country at one point uh, and uh, had co-authored their uh, born suspect report focused on ending racial profiling by law enforcement across the country. Um, and right. I mean, after that, I did work in Ferguson, Missouri, and in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, New York City, and North Charleston, South Carolina working on policing reform when I was at NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, as the policy counsel on the, uh, for the policing reform campaign. So I've been doing a lot of work in this area since then. What I did is started my own company, a consulting company, where I work with communities across the country on helping them to establish their own policing reform measures uh, that they own uh, out independent of law enforcement, independent of the government. So what does that mean? Essentially, what that means is that community members are able to identify the solutions that they believe exist in their community as it relates to commu- community police relations, and then strategize what that is going to look like in their community, and then just do it like Nike, just implement it. And so I work with them on doing that. If it could be, it could be focused on transparency, in other words, uh, making sure to develop a system where there is collection, uh, analysis, and publication of officer uh, community uh, encounters, police officer community encounters. It could also be uh, through establishing accountability mechanisms, which I'd love to talk about with you today. Here, I know that that's been the hot topic as it relates to policing reform is not necessarily transparency from law enforcement, but looks like it seems like it's uh, accountability. What are we going to do once these officers and police departments are found uh, to be essentially guilty of uh, committing misconduct on the job? And so that's what I do. I work with communities on doing that so that way we can have sustainable 
uh, uh, policing reform, not something that's only going to occur for like five years, which, what, which is what we've seen with a lot of policing in the recent years is that they're implemented, they work for maybe five years, maybe 10 at most, and then um, law enforcement regresses back to their old uh, bad behavior. And so how can we develop a system where communities involved, number one, and I think that's the major problem is that community is not involved in the decision-making process with law enforcement. So where communities involved and uh, not only in regards to hiring law enforcement, but also when it comes to their day-to-day jobs, such as like disciplinary measures for law enforcement that engage in misconduct and also uh, making sure that there's transparency. So that's what I focus on doing through my company in various ways. Uh, and I'm, thank you very much for having me on here to kind of talk about how the work I do at my company applies to what's going on now with current events. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you um, could come on to join us and um, that any time I've ever reached out to you, this one you happen to reach back out to me, but any time I've ever reached out to you, you've always made yourself available. And I'm so glad that I've gotten to know you over these years um, when we both worked, did a lot of work with NAACP. But let's, let's get into it for everyone that tuned in. Thank you for being there. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you for spending these few moments with us. I hope that you not only are listening, but you'll choose to share while you're watching. And if you could start a watch party, because as many people as possible that could pick this up, um, I think we're going to be better off because you never know which community that people that you know, maybe even your own community, really needs these tidbits of information. We're at a particular point right now, it seems, this is what my younger uh, associates are saying, is that this particular moment seems different. It's more intense than Ferguson. It's more intense than Baltimore. It seems more intense than anything that's happened in Chicago. Um, more intense than Milwaukee, and um, even some say it's more intense than Sanford. And we could go on with Baton Rouge and Houston and L.A. I mean, just about everywhere in the country, you know, there's been a situation. But since this one is more intense, that means there's more people. That means that there's more emotion. That means there's more activity. Now we must govern ourselves in directing our energies to the right place so that this doesn't happen every one or two years, in some cases every four to six months uh, of stories we don't hear about, but it, it, it gets to the point where it's once a year, once every three years, once every five years, maybe once every 10 years. I don't think it's going to stop because the system is a big system and we don't have enough people in positions like Brother Keith Ellison out in Ellis in Minnesota, who's able to, as an attorney general, and I talked to Carlton about this yesterday, probably to me the best AG that we have in the thought of being fair with people of all walks of life in their state, in the position to assist us. And when I say us, that means people, I believe, on the side of right, because we're anti-racist, we're anti-all um, uh, 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 of the things 
that you can think of that bring about an induction and um, spreading of hate. That's what we're against. In fact, for some of us, when we get up and put our feet on the floor, the devil is mad that we just got up that morning. So we have to be catalysts for the change. And that that brings me to um, something I want to talk about, Carlton. We've got all these people out in the streets protesting. I love protesting, right? I really love it, and I especially love it Mm -hmm. as a goal. But now we're at a point we've got all four officers charged. We've got an increased charge, probably the highest charge you're going to get in second-degree murder against the main culprit. Now we have this. In the Almond Arbery case, we had a ruling today by a judge that said there are sufficient, sufficient charges to move forward. I don't know what that had to do with it. It must have been an appeal or something against the indictment. But nevertheless, there have been an additional um, assistance from a judge to say that there were enough charges to move forward with a trial in that case. It looks like we're going to get traction with Breonna Taylor's case. I believe that was in, is that Louisville? Uh, yeah, um, Kentucky. Louisville in Kentucky, and, and so on and so forth. So there, there, there's, there seems to be traction um, with at least charges. But now, Carlton, we've got all this energy, right, all these people, and we've got charges filed. What do you say is the next step? as an organizer and as a policy person that the focus should be on for this, for this seemingly next phase. I do want to go back to something you said earlier around about uh, how this is the first time that we've ever had something like this happen, uh, that it's even more uh, much larger than what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, and even in Baltimore with those uprisings. Uh, mm-hmm. And I agree with you. I think the I think what makes this so notable, and uh, what what why this stands out so much is because of thinking about what happened before the uh, the uh, these incidents occurred recently around um, George Floyd. And if you think about it, we were going and we still are going through the pandemic, which had uh, a disproportionate adverse disproportionate impact on the African-American and Latino populations in this country, especially in uh, big cities like Chicago and New York, you know? Uh, And so when we were already going through that issue in regards to health concerns, which also ties Mm -hmm. into uh, inequities around access to healthcare for those same communities. Mm -hmm. uh, And then also considering the fact that because of the pandemic, we're also going through an, an unemployment crisis. Uh, and the economy is also going under, which means that a lot of people are out of work, like millions of people across the country are on unemployment, and uh, people who are working essential jobs, who also tend to be predominantly African-American, Latino, are also now more exposed to getting uh, the COVID-19 virus and bringing it back home to their family members. And so there's, there's just a lot of, I'd say, uh, additional stress on people of color, especially black and Latino uh, individuals right now, 
more so than ever because of all those different factors. And when you add in the incident with uh, George Floyd, then, you know, it, that, that just adds a whole other layer to it, which I think ended up being the straw that broke the camel's back uh, for mm-hmm. this country and for those communities. And, and not only for the black and brown communities, but also for white communities, white people who uh, either were woke already and already knew about this stuff and this, this just kind of brought it to the surface for them, or for others who were not woke, but this woke them up to what's going on. So, uh, and so I think all of that is what's led to now the 10th day of protest, right? Uh, right? And so when you consider that, when we're looking at solutions going forward, you know, beyond uh, the current case, you know, then we're looking more at policy changes, like policy reforms, which are more sustainable and longstanding. Uh, and so when we look at that, when, when we consider policy changes, I think right now something that a lot of protesters are saying is to defund law enforcement, uh, which I'm not saying that defunding law enforcement completely is the best thing to do. I think that that's something that uh, would have to be decided upon by community members. Every community is different. Every community has its own unique history and culture. And so uh, Mm -hmm. each one of them is going to have a different perspective on how policing should look within their community. Um, and so some of them might believe they don't need police and that they could do it on their own. Other ones might feel that they definitely need police and they might think they need more police than what they currently have. Right. So it's just, you, there's right. no one size uh, fits all in, when it comes to policing of communities. Um, but what something that we do know based on evidence-based research is that when you invest in certain community resources and services, such as youth services, reentry services, uh, pre-trial services, you know, wow. uh, drug, drug addiction services, treatment services uh, for people with substance abuse, you know, mental health services, so on and so forth. When you invest more in that, you have less incident for law enforcement to get involved in that involve those issues which means that the only, the only incidents that law enforcement would really have to get involved in would be the ones that would be the most severe, like murder, for instance, uh, as opposed to getting involved in a drug offense case, a low-level especially right. drug offense case, or a case of somebody who's in crisis and really needs a crisis intervention person to come and, and help them out, not a law enforcement officer who's going to be focused on controlling them and incarcerating them. So, um, you know, uh, if we look at divesting all that money that's put into law enforcement now and divesting a portion of it and then instead re- instead of and, and then reinvesting that money into these other services, including education. Right. More than right. likely, law enforcement is not going to have to get involved in those situations, which is going to lead to less occurrences of negative encounters between law enforcement and children or people of color. Uh, people who suffer from mental illness, people who have disabilities, so on and so forth. And then we'll get less of these incidents of officer-involved death. So I do think that when we look at the divest-invest model of divesting from law enforcement and corrections and investing more into community resources, I think that's really the direction we need to go in. I don't think it's defunding law enforcement completely, but I do think it has to do with divesting a good chunk of the money that they're already getting to go to the community to help them out in policing the community as opposed to just 
putting all that burden on law enforcement. I mean, they're not psychologists. They're not uh, skilled at engaging with people who have a drug addiction, right? They're skilled at right. locking people up, arresting them, and if somebody gets violent, using different tactics to get them in control. So uh, let me, I think let me that's add the direction right we here, need to go in. Uh, Carlton, let me, let me add this to, to that. Um, when you said the pre-trial stuff, we, we, we also need to look at, um, I think bail reform is also something to look at, uh, especially the disproportionate number, numbers on the amount of bail of between blacks and whites. But the, the other thing is, is I worked as a trainer for law enforcement when it came to mental health, and we had what we called mental health peace, peace officers in Texas. And there are several communities across the country that have trained um, mental health peace officers. And I was one who provided um, many hours, 20, in fact, of the 40 that they require here in Texas, in our area. And, you know, one of the things about um, the opportunity to shift funds from constantly buying guns and hiring more and more officers to actually community-based. And if they come through law enforcement, great. But if they come through another part of a city or municipality, that's, that's awesome too. But I think people need to know, and this is the caveat here, when I was hearing you talk about this in the option, this option, is that you always hear certain groups of people say we want smaller government. But yet when it comes to things that are clearly problematic, they want those things to be bigger. And that makes absolutely no sense. If you want smaller government, you want less government oversight, then why are you against making certain parts of the government smaller, such as the enforcement part of the laws. I don't know if it's going to ever work with the legislature. Um, we're, not, we're going to always probably have nine judges in the judicial system. It's always going to be that. But the enforcement part is where that subjective and objective point meets and where we seem to have the most problems. So if we worked on that, everybody gets what they want, smaller government, and then more focus on the people, not the enforcement of certain groups of people. I think that that option is definitely a viable one. But that, that bail thing, there's so many things, y'all, when it comes in to these situations that um, cause stress not only on the individuals who are being demonized, but also the individuals behind the badge, and there's a pressure to meet all these points. And sometimes people behind the badge um, um, uh, embellish, let's say, police reports, and they put, they're put in a position where because of the way the system is structured, it makes it more difficult on us 
because of the stress. So you got all this stuff, all these trainings you got to go to, all these things that these guys have to do, and yet there's nothing that helps us figure out if these guys are even people persons that could translate all this training into relationships in the community where you'd have so much less. I said earlier about that. And that was one of the things that one of the options you talked about, we, you and I personally, when um, that brother from Houston and he was in Seattle wrote the book on community policing. We, we discussed one time that, that, that real true community policing is, is an option as well. Don't you think? Right. So I was, I was going to tag along to what, like to what you're saying, because, um, so at the same time as this, you know, law enforcement and reinvesting into community services and resources uh, occurs, that would hopefully lead to a reduction, not only in uh, uh, what law enforcement would be called upon to do, like, like, you know, like what their responsibilities would be, but it would also be a reduction in the amount of people that would be law enforcement. Uh, we wouldn't need right. so many police. Uh have would be effective. They'd be well trained. They would have uh, a in the books that of their training, and they would have practices in place that would uh, foster and cultivate a culture of um, of acceptance, inclusion, and uh, of de-escalation. One where they do everything in their power <clears throat> to prevent conflict, to resolve it, and then if it does occur to control it so that everybody is safe, you know, so thereby respecting every every individual's human rights. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to create, like, you know how right now, you know, we have this pandemic going on with this virus, COVID-19, right? One thing about the virus, when you hear, like, doctors on TV, like Dr. Fauci talk about it, they talk about how um, the virus feeds on us as if we're food, and so, like, when people are asymptomatic, they don't show symptoms of it, and they're out and about, and they're, like, literally shedding the virus, they're spreading it on to others just by breathing. Right. Um, the virus that's on their body, that's in their body, is, like, trying to find another uh, body to go to so they could feed more and eat more. Now, the reason why it's able right. to do that, and we, we know this because we had to shelter in place to, you know, to counter this, is because before the shelter in place, the virus had an environment that was very hospitable for it, for allowing it to feed and thrive and spread. And so in order for us to counter that, we had to create an environment that was not hospitable for that virus. We had to create one that would not allow it to thrive and spread and ultimately would hopefully allow it to die, right? Um, Right. The same way, the same approach, the same way of thinking, has to be applied to law enforcement in respect to unfit officers. And when I say that, I mean individuals who found their way into the police force in whatever way, shape, or form, and are using the badge to tarnish it, literally. They are doing like what the officer did in the George Floyd case, like what the officer did in the Eric Gardner case and the Michael Brown case. These are all officers who were not fit to wear the badge. All right. And that should have been weeded out a long time ago. We know that each one of those officers to each one of those cases, this was not their first rodeo when they killed those black men. All right. 
This officer who killed George Floyd, he had 18 civilian complaints on his record before he killed this gentleman. Eric Gardner, Panateleo, Officer Panateleo, he had been moved around or reassigned from one precinct to another within New York City before he ended up in the precinct in Long Island where he killed Eric Gardner. Uh, the, the, off, the former officer who killed Mike Gardner, I mean, uh, Mike Brown in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, uh, he had actually worked at another police department before he was in the Ferguson Police Department and had had a similar incident where he used excessive force on an African-American. And then he had left that force because of that incident and then the, uh, joined the Ferguson Police Department. So these are all officers who had a record of being unfit. However, because the system, the police, the current system of policing is, is toxic, it's, it's discriminatory, and it, you know, uh, uh, and it needs to be reformed. Because it was not reformed, it allowed, it created an environment that allowed those officers to thrive, like the COVID-19 virus, feed off of that environment with black people who were impoverished, people are Latino in the community who are impoverished, struggling, you know, harassing them, targeting them, using their money to pay for the local government through uh, arrests and citations. They were doing that. And so that's what allowed them to thrive and then ultimately kill those gentlemen. And so what I'm saying is in order for us to change that dynamic, to change that outcome where black people and, P- and Latino people are not dying at the hands of law enforcement, we need to create an environment that is not hospitable for officers like that. We need to create an environment through policy reform, through changes in practices and changes in training, and also by having the community be involved in every aspect of that to make sure that that environment is not hospitable for them. In other words, it is going to be an environment that will be hard for them to do well, an environment that will be hard for them to dwell in the shadows or behind the blue wall, it's going to be that. So that, that's what policy and practices and grassroots advocacy, in my opinion, should be focused on from this moment. And this moment can be that for us. We can get that. But we have to really be focused on that initiative. And, and you know, the, the, the thing that has always gotten me is people don't realize how close to home what you're talking about here. Uh, right here in Longview there was an officer who got fired for his actions, turned right around and got hired at a, a, piece, a police department right next door to us and then became the chief of that police department. And the law enforcement officers and leadership were laughing at that city but also saddened because they knew how bad of a cop this guy was, yet their hands were tied because based on T-Close, which is the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement, and HR and police unions, they could not share the personnel file of that officer. So when you have reform in your police department, And every one of us as black one, I can't say every one of us now, but most of us as black men have had an experience, a negative experience with law enforcement. And if you've lived in the same community for any amount of time, you usually could share that experience 
with the same officer with 20 or 30 other brothers. The problem becomes some people won't speak up and say anything because they know the system basically throws that in the file, and now uh, IA has mentioned your name to this officer, and he's going to ramp up his harassment of you. That's one thing. But the other thing is is that that officer really has no no one to answer to. So if we could get to the point where we're on a state and national level, where we could keep these guys from going to another state, not just leaving one city and literally going seven miles to the east and getting hired, and not only hired, becoming a police chief, and they could never be rehired again in this city, we have to have a way to decertify and decommission these officers so that they can't, like in Ferguson, leave one department already with uh, citations on your record to go to another one and then perpetuate that same behavior right right there in that. The same thing with the brother that the, the, the brother that got killed in Oklahoma. You remember that one? I can't remember his name, Carlton. Yeah, remember Terrence he Crutcher. was there on the road with a female officer or whatever. They shot him. But that officer had just been relieved of duty two counties over and for similar behavior and then shot that man um, right there on the highway. Um, we, we, you guys, the, the, the types of things that make the difference come after the fire and the smoke um, settles because there's constantly microaggressions in our community, and if we don't get a rap on them, they end up building up to these types of incidents with George Floyd. And so if we can curve that behavior, that's where we're winning. And you've got to beat them on paper because it's got to be clear. If you do X, Y, Z, then ABC is shut down for you. And you have to find another career. There's other jobs. Listen, they don't have to be police, okay? If, if we're getting fired for, for our hair on a job, if we're getting fired because of our swagger on a job, we can find another job. These, these people can find another job. They don't have to be police. Police isn't a job for everybody anyway in the first place. So you need to be in a place where you're better suitable to society and just running all willy-nilly and thinking you can exact um, um, retribution for how um, Tyrone did you in high school all the rest of your life on all the other Tyrones and Jeromes because you got treated bad one time or you felt like you were treated bad one time. Um, is is just ridiculous. So yeah, man, that 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 definitely is something. Now let's um let's let's shift a little bit. Um, people often ask, what is it that a person can do to ensure that you leave a interaction with law enforcement 
alive. And I used to do trainings called Interaction with 5.0, and I, I had all these great answers. I used to have police and defense attorneys and former DAs come in and speak to the young black youth. And I've come to find out that even if you comply, some of these individuals, and I'm so sick of people hollering, sir, on these videos to people who are killing us or hurting or maiming us. It's it's making me nauseous almost. Um, But we have to learn verbal judo and teach our kids through watching videos, through interactions that you're in the public with, um, to, to learn people's behaviors. Um, I instantly know when I'm in an interaction with a law enforcement officer who is very, very uncomfortable with interacting with me. I mean, I am six foot four, 400 pounds, and it makes it hard on a lot of people, but I can tell um, through discernment um, some of the behaviors of officers who have the tendency to be a little itchy with the fingers and or the wantonness to exact harm any way possible, even if it's economic or employment-wise, because they will stick cases on you where it makes it hard for you to get an education. Carlton, we're going to talk about that at the end, some of the things that you're doing there in Chicago and some of the things you're doing across that state when it comes to employment with uh, people who've been convicted um, before we leave tonight. But these, all these things can be done by these officers right there on an, in an interaction that we have with them on the street. They can let us go, leave us alone. They can write a ticket. They can press charges or at least, at least arrest and claim charges on us, and then they can also incarcerate us. And then, unfortunately, in incidents, they can also um, assassinate or um, what's the term when the, when the state kills you? Um, uh, what is it? What is it called? Execute you right there on site. So all that can happen. But here's the thing, and I, I thought there was a formula, and, and then what I'm seeing, there, there is no exact formula, but there are a few things. Always, everybody needs to have at least one, and if you can afford it, if you make more than, I'm going to say if you make more than $40,000 a year, you ought to have one of those mounted cameras in your vehicles. If you can have the one that's on the front and out the back that can show your driving and then any, anything going on behind your vehicle, as well as being able to turn it to show what's going on out of your driver's side window, um, that would be primo because you have to catch this stuff on camera. One of the things with, the incident in Kentucky is that the officers turned off their cameras. Is, isn't that right, Carlton? They turned off their body yep. cameras and the yep. police chief got fired. They haven't done nothing right. with this officer that did shooting yet, but the police chief has gotten fired 
because they had a practice of doing this. So if they're not going to even use this equipment that came into play because of another black person getting killed, if they're going to turn it off, then you need to always have something on. And I say that about these mounted cameras because I see them snatching phones. I see them grabbing phones. They, they delete uh, camera video off of people's phones. Um, if you can run a live or Instagram where it's streaming live, and then, you know, if they try to get to it, it's already saved on a cloud somewhere, all that's great. I think one of the most pivotal things with what we're seeing and being able to have justice nowadays is the implementation of technology. If we had these phones that, that record at all times, everybody's got one in their hand, um, back in the 80s and the 90s when I was doing my thing, um, we would already have been at this point. Can you imagine these cameras in the 50s and 60s? People wouldn't care if you had the video because they'd overlook it. But we're in a day and age now where it seems like people care at least on a grand scale. And with all these people caring, we have the momentum to move forward. So I don't know what other caveat you would say, Carlton, as we pivot to, to the training part with, with being prepared, but that's, I think, one of the number one things is the ability to record any interaction with law enforcement. Yeah, record. And, you know, definitely when you're engaging with them, be deferential, never consent to a, uh, a search of your vehicle. <clears throat> always keep your hands where they can see them. In other words, if you're in the car, turn on the light over by the rear view mirror, put your hands on the steering wheel so that way they can always see where they are and they can't use that as an excuse for trying to use uh, lethal force. So, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of like the regular know your rights uh, in regards to how to engage with law enforcement. Well, I, I think something that is uh, something to note uh, looking forward are really the policy reforms because I know a lot of people tend to focus on the know your rights, which is important. They also tend to focus on, um, you know, like trying to get accountability of individual cases, which is also important. But at the end of the day, none of this is going to end. The way that law enforcement engages with us, the way that we have to engage with them, um, you know, uh, trying to, you know, prevent death and brutality from law enforcement, none of that's going to end until we have adequate solid, non-discriminatory policy reforms, and they have to be enforced, and they have to have community involvement, not only in the development of the policies, but also in the implementation of the policies. And so I think right. that's going to have to be key. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, decertification, that's important. I want to say a bit more about that, because I don't think a lot of people in the community understand what that is. So essentially, every law enforcement officer uh, has to be licensed in order to be a police officer in America. And uh, mm -hmm. most states will have what they call a post commission or a peace officer standards and training commission, POST. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, that, that group, that board, that commission uh, consists of individuals who are responsible for uh, number one, determining what training the officers of that state need to undergo in order to be an official police officer within that state, mm -hmm. how often they have to get training in it, uh, in addition to whatever standards 
that they have to adhere to in order to keep their certification. Uh, and so, in other words, in order for them to continue to be a police officer. And so every right. state has, most states have their own post commissions. And those, and I'd say right now, based on the research that I've seen, um, there are only at least, or there are at least 44 states right now in America that have a decertification law. And so pretty much that's a state law that um, allows the post commission that I just talked about to take away the license or certification of somebody who is a, an, uh, a law enforcement officer. And the only way that can happen is if that, in that officer has engaged in misconduct. Typically it has right. to be something really severe, like an unjustifiable murder, like we're talking about like uh, 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 George Floyd's death, something like that uh, would be a situation where that officer or the officers who are involved in it could lose their certification uh, if there's a decertification on the books within that state that allows the post commission to do that. And so that's something that I think is not talked about a lot, but I think should be yeah. because, you know, a lot of times families who like who've been victimized, you know, they've lost a loved one due to police violence. They're trying to not only find accountability for themselves in that moment, but they also want to make sure that this doesn't happen to another mother. This doesn't happen to another brother, another sister, to another child, to lose a loved one due to police violence. And the only way you're going to prevent that from happening to somebody else is to make sure that those officers or that officer who committed this act is not able to do it to another person again. That means you need to take away their ability to have the badge. You need to decertify them. And the only way that that community members know about that is to actually understand what decertification is, how it functions, and then to see if your state has a decertification law. Not all states in America have one. Most of them do, but not all of them do. And so if you do have a decertification law, then you have to learn about, well, does that, like, like what exactly would would fall under decertification? Like, is it only murder? Or could it also be if somebody were to brutalize an individual, not murder them, but just beat them up brutally. Could that also fall under decertification? And so, you know, you want to, you know, I, I, I'm always about trying to broaden it to the, to the extent that if an officer is um, uh, uh, committing fraud on the job, they're uh, 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 assaulting and raping women on the job, uh, they're murdering people on the job unjustifiably, like brutalizing yeah. people. Yeah, they should be decertified because you're tarnishing the badge. You're making now, other me, officers here. Who, who are good officers, you're making them look bad and you're making their job more difficult. So, yeah, that's right. Be and they're all a part, they're all in the same union, and it's hard, it's hard for them to say something because these, these guys don't want to lose these pensions. They don't want to lose this brotherhood that they have because there are times where, you know, officers call for backup, and because they spoke up, the other officers wouldn't come. And there were some people in jeopardy. So the good cops, I, I, they have to speak up. I, I just know that. But you you got to understand that on the other side of that blue line is tragic. We had a question, Carlton, and I knew the answer, but uh, my little brother here, Kadarius, he asked, does that certif- decertify them in all states? Yes. If they yes. lose their certification, it goes into a file where if they try to get certified in another state, they w- that will show up. 
okay, that they were decertified as an officer. And so, you know, some people say commissioned or whatever, but no, yes, that makes them unable to become law enforcement at all. So there's another nuance to that that I want to say that that's important that ties to what you just said. So uh, does that mean that they're not able to become a police officer in another state? It should work that way, but I'll be honest, it does not. Uh, Currently what that means is that if a state has a decertification law, if that officer or that person who was a police officer, if they were to try to be a police officer at another police department within that same state, then no, they would not be able to do that. But if they were to travel to another state, maybe one right right next door, they could still potentially become an officer. And this, this ties into another problem that we need to have a reform around is the fact that currently there is not an active operational national decertification index. There yeah, used to yeah. be. There used to be. There used to be. And, and the DOJ Long was uh, working on that. But the funding was cut, and now that we have a new president, we don't have President Obama in the White House anymore, He has a uh, President Trump has a very effective on policing, and he does not believe in accountability of law enforcement the way President Obama did. So right now, Let's, an officer, if they were decertified in one state, could go to another state and still get a job. Yeah. As an officer. But mind you, it still is if they I don't know how they do it, but what I've heard, especially from Texas to Louisiana and Louisiana to Texas, where I spent a lot of my work at, if an officer was decertified in Texas, they're not going to be able to work in Louisiana um, because they can pull up when the officer puts that, you know, he had um, been previously an officer. That isn't the decertification isn't hidden like personnel record, so it would come up, um, and if they did any kind of reference and ask that. But then again, you're right. There is a potential, which Kadarius is that's a yes and a no, where they don't even do any um, reference checks, which to me is unheard of. But I'm sure at some small police departments, it probably has happened. But um, any any sizable department, they would do. When most of them do reference checks, if if they found out he was decertified, decertified, which is a big deal, there's, there's they wouldn't hire. But here's the next thing, and I'm glad Brother Clay brought this up. Is what I do believe if the presidency changes like it should come January because of what we do by voting in November. And as many as the people on the right that I've come across that say they are through with this dude and he does not represent Republicans like they want their Republicanism to be represented, um, then I do believe this one thing will begin to happen across the city, I mean, not sure, across the country. And we did not mention it yet, but that is that there is a strong push not only to have this certification oversight reinstituted through the um, AG, but also this, Carlton, and that is citizens review boards in, in almost in every community. There has to be some type of civilian oversight that has power to subpoena. You got to throw that in there. 
um, these officers to come in, and if they lie under oath, automatic termination and and should be automatic decertification. But you you're not. That's going to be real tough to push that far. far. But if they have to call in anybody they want to 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 investigate um, a complaint against an officer can be minor complaints, but this citizens or civilian review board, I hate to use the word civilian, Clay, because mind you, every single police officer, unless he's also active duty military, is a civilian. Don't get the, Watch that jargon because they try to differentiate us, and trust me, unless you're active duty military, you're a civilian, and so police officers are too, and so this these community-based Review boards that have subpoena power can help us to get a grip on these officers, even in one complaint, because they know that if they have a complaint, they got to go before this review board. It's made up of citizens in the same community who will have the ability to see their personnel record and they can hold them accountable. I also think with that, Carlton, that I saw this from. Um, the other day um, where these new officers coming into communities as police officers, one of the stipulations, especially in cities of particular sizes, is that they have to work community service hours. That's a stipulation of their hiring in all sectors, all whatever um, divisions of that city and get to know people in those communities through those through these particular places that they can get community service to meet the people that they will be policing but all those things again lead back to policy because unless these things are in writing and unless these things are 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 are, are factors that are firmly set to keep um, good cops good and bad cops out we're going to continue to see what we're seeing. And, and, and these things, I don't know what you think about it, Carlton, with the uh, Citizens Review Boards, but um, you've got to have some other oversight than just the police chief, the lieutenant, and the sergeant or, yeah, the sergeant that's over the internal affairs who are working every day with these people, um, sometimes roommates with the people that they're supposed to investigate. Well, no, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in complete uh, agreement about the need for uh, not only civilian complaint review boards but and not only making sure they have subpoena power. I would say to add on making sure that they have also uh, disciplinary decision-making power that sticks. Yeah. So, yeah. in other words, when, when, when they get those complaints and they do their investigation and find that, okay, an officer is actually uh, guilty uh, of, of, of what they've been accused of, in this case, if it be police brutality, death, whatever, and then say, well, because of that, we believe that your employment should be dismissed or terminated with this police department. When they make that decision and they send it to, if it's the Internal Affairs Bureau, if it's the police chief or whatever internal disciplinary process exists, that decision should have heavy weight and should stick. And if it doesn't stick, then there should be something in writing that is made public stating or that should be publicly accessible stating specifically why 
they decided not to go through with the decision made by the Civil and Complaint Review Board. All of that needs to yeah. happen. And I would say, just to piggyback on that as well, is that every aspect of policing, in my opinion, should have community involvement. Because at the end of the day, the only way we're going to prevent this from happening is through community empowerment. And community empowerment means that the community needs to be involved, they need to have knowledge, and they need to have decision-making power over what is happening. And that has to do with hiring of law enforcement, making sure that when they are hired and recruited, communities involved in that process, communities involved in the training that the people who are hiring to undergo, including implicit bias training, you know, cultural sensitivity training, trauma-informed care training, because a lot of these people are coming from traumatized communities and are traumatized themselves. And so all of that needs to be bundled in, including with Civilian Complaint Review Board, if we're talking about the internal disciplinary hearings that happen, they're usually uh, run by law enforcement officers, law enforcement officers judging other law enforcement. That doesn't make any sense. Those panels should have community members on them, so that way it's law enforcement and community making those final determinations on on a law enforcement officer's employment if they've engaged in misconduct. They should also, when we're talking about decertification and the post commission, the Peace Officer uh, Standards and Training Commission, I think communities should be involved with the post commission around decertification. I don't think it should just be police department to the post commission when it comes to relaying that information. I think the community should be involved in that as well. So that way when officers are being decertified, community members are able to raise that with the post commission. This officer should be decertified, and this is why. And they should be able to engage with community on those decisions. And so I'm just saying that I think one of the major reasons why we're once again in this situation in America with another black person who was killed unlawfully by law enforcement is because community does not equal police plus community members. Right now, community means the people in the community, and then you have the law enforcement, right? And that's not right. one community. Those are two different communities. They need, and in order right. for them to function properly, they need to function as one. And that means divesting from law enforcement so much money and reinvesting that in the community, and at the same time as doing that, creating that inhospitable environment for those unfit officers so that way you can weed them out and leave behind only the best of the best and the brightest who deserve to be representing the badge. And right now we don't have yeah. that. We have a system where they're letting yeah. in all these officers. They're, they're finding new ways to get more money, which is taking away money from community resources, which is what's causing the problem, making people think that they need law enforcement. So it, it's like, like, it, like we've created this cycle that's never ending. And until we start seeing ourselves as one community and how we can work together as one, we're never going to be able to get ourselves out of this cycle. And there will be more George Floyd. There will be more protests. All right? So, I mean, you know, I, I just think as long as we start thinking about getting community involved in all these different respects and areas of law enforcement, until we do that, we're never going to really see change. And that's something that I'm yeah. working on with communities across the country through my, my, uh, my company is working with them to empower them so that way they are involved in all those processes through policy reform. These, these days and time, and, and yes, Clay, those videos and recordings are made available immediately 
to the review boards and complaints go to the review board and uh, the IA usually at the police department. They usually, if, if they're any size of department, they, those complaints go straight to IA because they know if that complaint is founded and it went through a, like a, the direct supervisor, if you will, of, of the officer that was complained and it was tweaked or changed, they would have some real problems. So typically it's uh, copies go to both entities when you have that, or the IA works with the, uh, there's all kinds of setups that the review boards can look like. They can have, they can be as weak as they're only called in on specific complaints all the way up to every complaint. And they have like uh, Crawford mentioned, not only the power to call in, people to be investigated or be interviewed, but also to determine what is the outcome with, uh, or at least a heavy um, say-so in the outcome of the disciplinary action. So that leaves us, man, we went, it's now nine o'clock. Of course, I knew this show was going to run long, but um, we couldn't get everything out. And I mentioned to Carlton the other day that we're going to do these, this, this at least the next two weeks. Um, of having this discussion and, and pushing the, the, the community far. We've got to be pushing and pulling because this is not the time to relinquish pressure. We've got to keep applying pressure uh, from the side of policies and, and paperwork is concerned. So before we go, in case you guys um, and ladies aren't able to be on next week, um, Carlton, I want you to share with folks the work that you're doing now um, with the group there in Chicago as it relates to the kind of reform you're trying to get going on with uh, people who've been convicted of crimes and who have paid their debt to society. Well, thank you. Uh, well, I, uh, before I get to that, I just want to say real quick, uh, well, number one, thank you for having me on. Number two, I was going to say that um, in regards to my company, the name of the company is Mayor's Strategic Solutions. And um, if you are interested in speaking with me uh, or, you know, you think that uh, the work I'm doing to empower community members through community involvement, policy reform, grassroots advocacy, legislative advocacy, so on and so forth, if that's something that you're interested in, uh, you can always contact me at C, like Cat, T, like Tom, M, like Mary, A, Y, E-R-S, the number two, at gmail.com. So it's ctmayors2 at gmail.com. I'm sure, Brandon, you can also reach out to him to get my information. I also have a Facebook page up for Mayor Strategic Solutions, LLC. Uh, you could also just, uh, you know, search it in Facebook, and you can reach out to me that way uh, so I can work with you and your community on uh, trying to empower it and resolve these policing issues that we're going through right now uh, for longstanding change. Now, in regards to the work I'm doing in Chicago, I'm currently running a criminal justice reform program in Illinois for a, non, uh, a nonprofit uh, called uh, Heartland Alliance. They're based in the Midwest and do a lot of work to address poverty, both internationally and uh, domestically. Uh, so I run the criminal justice program there for the state of Illinois and uh, essentially we're focused specifically on ending permanent punishments 
for individuals who have a, a criminal ba- a history background. So it could be arrest records, criminal records. Uh, and we want to make sure that after they've been released, served their time, uh, that now they're back in the community and they're able to uh, get back on their feet and become a gainful resident of their community uh, so that we're able to gainfully contribute to their community. So we do that by removing what we call collateral, people call collateral consequences, we call them permanent punishments, uh, so that way these individuals will not have laws on the books that are restricting them from employment, education, like higher education, and uh, from housing, such as public housing. Uh, So right now, that's what we've been doing, doing a great job on that, and very happy with it. Um, And I'm also, like I said, happy with the work I'm doing on the policing reform front there's one more thing I'm going to mention just in regards to what I do for my company, with my company, Maya Strategic Solutions, is that uh, I worked with the Obama administration back in 2016 uh, on behalf of NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And um, uh, I worked with them on adapting the 21st Century Policing Task Force report into mm-hmm. a community action card deck, which essentially are uh, 30 cards. Each one has a different recommendation from the report on a solution to policing reform. And um, what it does is that it allows community members to identify solutions that are the recommendations in the report so they, that they, the community, decide which solutions they want to see in their, in their community, not law enforcement saying, oh, yeah, we're just going to get body-worn cameras. That will be the solution. It's like, no, we want real change, and this is what it looks like. Um, so they identify the solution. They also strategize it. The cards help them to do that through a series of questions that are on the back of each card. And then it also provides a real-life example of a community that's already implemented the solution on the card. So that way you can see what another community did, and then you can custom tailor it for your own particular community. Because like I mentioned earlier, every community is different. They have their own culture, history, so on and so forth. So we want to make sure there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, So what I do is I work with uh, communities across the country. On number one, I have a PowerPoint training in which I educate them on the cards and I teach them on how to use it. I also do a train the trainer, which I just did one this past February in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, and so that was very successful. Um, and I work with community leaders and educate them on how to put on their own strategy sessions using the community action card deck. And then the last service I provide is that I can actually facilitate a strategy session uh, because I'm one of the people to create the cards, uh, you, I, I get to show you the way that the cards were meant to be uh, uh, utilized to develop strategy. And so at the end of the day, um, each one of those services I provide, like I said earlier, helps to empower community members so that they're the ones that own the solutions that they want to see in their communities. And then they're able to implement to strategize it and then implement it. So that's what I help them with doing. So please reach out to me, Mayor Strategic Solutions. And uh, thank you. I look forward to being back on next week, Brandon. Um, I want you to give that uh, contact information one more time. I'm going to post it, um, as you say it, on this stream here on Facebook. So give me that email again, Carlton. The email is C T. M like Mary, A Y, E R S. Then the number two at gmail dot com. So C T Mayors two at gmail dot com. 
Okay. Um, there you and, have it. And then on Facebook, um, I was going to say, then on, uh-huh. if they go on Facebook, they could just put in Mayers, my last name, M, like Mary, A-Y-E-R-S, the word strategic, mm-hmm. and then the word solutions. If they just put in Mayor Strategic Solutions in the Facebook search engine, my Facebook page will come up. Okay. I'm putting that in, too. Thank you. So there you have it, everybody. I posted it so y'all can see it there, Mayor's Strategic Solutions. So, Carlton, we had a good talk today. Next week I want to continue this conversation and and continue moving forward because I, I really truly believe that if we start having these conversations over the things we discussed here, you're going to see a change so dramatic in your community as folks grasp on to these concepts because they have a very traditional a positive um, change that has occurred in communities who have done these things. It's, it's, it's very hard to have bad cops in a community that one oversees or at least works side by side with the brass of the police department Okay, and then two, a knowledgeable community that people and the police know that the people know their rights. Okay, and then two, if the police get out of hand, they will not work in law enforcement again. So, all these things work to have better interactions between everyday working hard people and the people that we have tapped to protect and serve us. So stay tuned next week at eight o'clock. We're going to move to a higher height for training. We're going to give you some information that you can take back to your community to hopefully make it a better place than what it is now. So, um, my words are signing out. Carlton, do you have any last words? I just want to say to everybody, thank you for having me on. Um, I love talking about this stuff, and I love also getting questions from uh, the uh, uh, those listening, so that way we can all work together on finding some solutions to bring about peace for our communities. I just want to say to everybody, uh, regardless of everything going on, just make sure to stay healthy and stay safe. Man, and I couldn't have said better last words. Hey, good night, everybody.